people, hello and welcome to episode 176 of Blockchain Insider. I'm Mauricio Magaldi, Global Strategy Director for Crypto here at 11FS, and I'm joined by my co-host Kai Sheffield, Head of Crypto at Visa. Hey Kai, how are you doing? Welcome to the show. I am great. I said, I feel like we've bounced. We got a lot to talk about, a number of exciting things looking forward in the crypto space. Awesome. So it's really good to have you with us. Today's show is a news show. So let's take a look at our stories. First one is everything you need to know about the FTX crash and Uniswap overtaking Coinbase as the second largest exchange trading Ethereum. Look at that. Telegram to launch a cryptocurrency exchange and non-custodial wallet. That's big news. And JP Morgan, DBS, SBI Digital Assets complete a DeFi tokenization trial on public blockchain while the New York Fed and leading banks start regulating liability network pilot. That's very interesting news as well. To dig into this, we're also joined by some fantastic guests making a debut on the show, Dalip Tiagi, SVP and Head of Developer Relations at Polygon Technology. Hey, Dalip, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? It's a beautiful Monday morning here in Pacific Northwest, so I'm doing wonderful. And I think industry is uh, going to share some wonderful news this week as well. So looking forward to the conversation. Awesome. And a warm welcome back to Edward Woodford, CEO at Zero Hash. How are you doing today, Edward? And over the weekend, uh, we've had some big, big news announced. Uh, Stripe announced the Fiat to Crypto on-ramp widget with Zero Hash. So can you give us a brief summary of the news and how that come to pass? How did you partner with Stripe and how that happened? Yeah, no, thanks for having me back on. Um, yeah, the, the, I think the Stripe news is um, super exciting. I think it's um, part of, I think it would lead to greater adoption. But also it's kind of, I think, interesting um, as you think about consumer businesses entering the Web3 space, traditional payment groups offering these uh, crypto rails, Web3 rails, um, incredibly exciting. Um, you know, so we've known Stripe for about a year. Um, we power a lot of, I would say, more crypto-native on-ramps, groups such as MoonPay or Transac or Banksa. And so, you know, we've got years of experience working with more crypto-native groups, but this is obviously um, one of the um, newer established payment groups entering the space. So we're super excited to be part of with them um, and for that uh, adoption to increase. Awesome. So before we dive in, just as a reminder to the listeners... The views or opinions of our panel are their own and don't necessarily reflect those of the companies that they are representing. And as always, nothing we say here should be taken as tax, financial, or legal advice. So do your own research. So let's get started. The first one, we're going to cover uh, the FTX crash and also a kind of a surprising, but maybe not as surprising, uh, kind of correlated news of Uniswap overtaking Coinbase as the second largest exchange trading Ethereum. So if, again, if you've lived under a rock, we're going through a massive uh, month new, of news uh, in crypto where FTX, uh, led by Sam Bankman-Fried, also known as SBF, got into a hut of a mess by doing a bunch of unregulated, I want to say, things with uh, customer balances, having exposed themselves to massive leverages, and then when rumors starting to run on crypto Twitter, FTX, the exchange, got into a liquidity crunch from a massive bank run on client deposits that they could not honor. So Binance came into the picture, tried to bail it out, backed out, and we saw um, all of the crypto market, as Kai alluded in the beginning, coming, uh, crashing down in the uh, light of those um, events. Now, Amongst all of that, we saw uh, journalism playing a little bit of a weird part on the traditional media, but the expert media in crypto was very adamant in putting SBF under the right light. So I want us to start commenting on that with, with a few of the points. So is this a single kind of Bear Stearns or Lehman Brothers or Enron moment in our industry? And, and uh, I'm going to start with you, Edward. I saw you wrote a very unique piece on the topic, very, um, very precise, laser-focused on some of the things that led to that. Is this our annual moment in crypto? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, the, the post that I put out, um, just sharing an email uh, from um, 2020, um, effectively being asked by an investor 
uh, what do you think of FTX? Um, the two were always inextricably linked, right? FTX and Alameda. Um, I wouldn't just say that what they did was unregulated. I think we've got to call it what it was. Um, what they did was grossly illegal, um, no matter what jurisdiction you're in. Um, and effectively, they took client assets and lent them out um, to a proprietary trading firm. A lot of the conversation when you look at Good Morning America's interview or the interview that he did um, at the panel, I think, with the New York Times, a lot of the conversation is about risk mitigation. The fundamental point is those weren't his assets to take risk on. They were client assets that were meant to be there one-to-one. And so it doesn't really matter um, what the risk was. You shouldn't have been taking any risk, zero risk. Um, so I, I do think it's important not to conflate, you know, a Bear Stearns and other pieces were just frankly fraud. Um, and, I, you know, so I, I do think it's a little bit of a, a wake up, but it's the same story time and time again. I mean, it's sports washer, it's sports washing, it's media washing. Um, I don't expect a mayor Cooper from, from a lot of these groups, but people do need to recognize that creating this cult of SBF did allow him to do things that I think otherwise wouldn't have been allowed. Got it. Um, Talib, what's your take on it? What's your perspective um, with what happened and, and what are the repercussions we should expect? 150% agree with Edward. I think what happened is not the failure of Web3. What happened was not the failure of crypto. It was a one bad apple. And as Edward said, it was not his assets to leverage. It was illegal, it's a Ponzi scheme, or however you want to put it. It's The technology is still there. The technology allows the decentralization. Technology gives power back to the users. It brings the transparency. And in this case, what's happening is that he is leveraging the assets that are not his own. And as the external pressure starts to come in, the liquidation crunch that could have come with the uh, CZ liquidating his uh, assets in FTX, that was just the wake-up call for him to like let me cover my open liabilities. But again, that is the ends to the means, but the that end to the means started a long, long way ago when he started taking the money from one corporation or the, in this case, there are two different entities. Maybe for him it's one, but they are two different entities. And if you take the learnings from the, Marisha, as you were talking about, you know, the Bear Stearns and all, if you take any of the learnings from the banking industry, you know, the research and investments are kept separate. There has been regulations that came into play after 2007 and 2008. There's a role that auditors play. There's a role that the credit rating agencies play. And in this case, what you are seeing is the collapse, but it was the collapse driven by the fundamental flaw driven by one individual or a set of set of individuals within that core circle that allowed everything to be misused and that led to the failure and the repercussion that we see as an industry. Just on that point, I, I think it's interesting. Just I, I mean, you probably have a much more active social life than I, um, but on Friday night, I, I entertained myself by watching back interviews from SBF a year ago. And there was one interview where he was interviewed and they were framing him as this genius. And they said, look, Sam runs... Alameda, he runs FTX, and he runs Serum. And when you listen to that back, this isn't Elon Musk handling Twitter and running multiple companies or Jack Dorsey. Those are different. These are fundamental conflicts of interest by having an exchange, a leveraged um, hedge fund, or whatever you want to call what it was, plus a token. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's kind of out. It's so interesting to listen to these things back. They do not age very well. But, you know, it was pretty obvious these conflicts were there. And once you create conflicts of interest, you know, people will exploit them. 100%. I just uh, to comment on, on Dalva's point, I mean, the thing about learning with mistakes, uh, you don't get to be, you know, 200, 400 years old of an industry like the financial services industry without learning from your past mistakes, right? That's why regulations come into play. Um, interesting to know your take on this also, Kai. Yeah, I think first, extremely unfortunate. I think hopefully this has been a forcing function to increase scrutiny around any centralized exchange and custodial uh, platform. And so I think just seeing you know people spending a lot more time looking at on-chain 
transactions and, and trying to understand what's happening, seeing calls and uh, exchanges, you know, at least indicating that you know they're considering supporting proof of reserves, uh, which I think there are you know, many important things that exchanges could do to provide more clarity around their assets. And then the fact that you know throughout all this, blockchain networks continued making blocks, and you know the the technology continued to move on. And so you know I was just looking at the fact that you know as crazy of a month as November was, it ended up being the highest single month in on-chain transaction volume for stablecoins like USDC. And so there was about $400 billion of, of volume, you know, dollars moved across blockchains. And maybe part of that were, you know, people looking to withdraw from exchanges, um, you know, because there, there was less, you know, trust in them. Um, but it just shows that, you know, there will be, you know, individual platforms that, that fail or, you know, make decisions that absolutely should not have been made. Um, but the underlying technologies these platforms are built on are incredibly resilient and are going to keep chugging along. And, and there will be new companies that come on. Uh, and we hope that the next wave of companies and, and the existing ones that remain will have a, a higher standard that they hold themselves to. Um, and there'll be more you know, clarity for consumers um, to be able to, to see that those assets are there and, and how they're managed. Yeah, I like that you mentioned about the um, the resilient characteristic of the underlying technology in crypto that continue to, to chug along and spit out blocks. Uh, is that uh, Uniswap, a decentralized exchange, actually reported volumes bigger than Coinbase for a period of time on the Ethereum space and had all-time high trading volumes on you know in light of this um, in this event. So. Uh, Kai, you and I recorded a recent um, DEX Insights episode where we explored more of that component. Um, I'm going to go with you, uh, Dalip. Um, is this a, a trend we, we can expect to see that as both regulators and consumers and the market in general gets educated on the benefits of the decentralized infrastructure, do you see that DEXs in particular, but decentralized finance in more general terms, will start to make its way into the mainstream because of the very characteristic that they bring to the table. Mauricio, I will agree with your statement, but at the same time, at the end of the day, the corporations or the individuals that are going to win in this marketplace are the one that drives the most efficiency to the end customer. And that who brings the trust. You know, the finances are our biggest assets. That's what we work for. That's what we aspire to you know, gather throughout our life. So the corporations that brings, that uses leverages Web3 as a technology to build a decentralized system that can provide the, as Kai was talking about earlier, the proof of reserves, providing that trust, building the trust with the customer will continue to win. And at the end of the day, when everything becomes a table stake, then it becomes like who provides the better value, like who has the lowest fees, who has the best best listing, who has the broadest network, who has the best support. So when I think about like putting the customer perspective first, what the UX can do, what the trust can be built, what are the additional services that can be offered? I do see that the DEX has that intrinsic advantages leveraging the Web3 that have the infinite scaling that they can do. And probably in the short term, they are looking at the businesses that are less regulated. So that has a like they they have a little bit of a runway compared to some of the other traditional exchanges where they can continue to grow. But I think over the long term, the one who keeps customer as a left, right, and center and use technology to enable those experiences, bring the efficiency, bring the visibility in different forms and manners is going to win. So in my short take is that the decks are going to win in the long term. Got it. No, I, I think we're... we're uh... We're, we're well positioned. Uh, any comments with that regard? In that regard, uh, Edward. I mean, my view is that crypto is a technology and not an asset class, right? So often we do focus on crypto as a trading mechanism or as a as a store of value, right? As a, as a tradable asset, and that's obviously a big part of the conversation. I mean, I, I think what's interesting as well is that it's also a payment mechanism. What's happening there? Um, I, I, I think. Both worlds are going to exist. I don't think decentralized finance is going to completely re replace CFI. I think there's going to be some mix. I mean, obviously, our business 
is to enable any traditional business to offer digital assets natively embedded within their own infrastructure, what we call crypto as a service. So I wouldn't necessarily agree DEX is going to win because um, that's slightly against our, our thesis, but I certainly do think DEXs will grow. The, the overall pie will grow. Um, but it's going to be not just in trading, it's going to be all sorts of things. And I, just going back to the FTX point, I think that's really, really important as well. Because I hope the pendulum doesn't swing too far. Um, you know, I think uh, the, the, the commissioner or the chairman of the CFTC came out and said that everything but Bitcoin is a security. That's literally four months after saying that he believed many things were commodities. I think in large part, it is a CYA of basically saying, well, we shouldn't have been regulating this, so we're not to blame for what's happened. But I do think that's really, really important that this is a technology, not an asset class. So on the trading side, there will be this centralized exchange, decentralized exchange, DEX. Um, but that's only part of, I think, the overall crypto landscape. Marisa, if I get a chance to clarify my stand, I agree with uh, Edward. I don't think one is going to replace the other. I think it's not a zero-sum game. All of them are going to win. And, but again, depending on the use case and depending on the value that they bring to the market. So again, I was looking at a very narrow case of uh, looking at uh, the transaction within the crypto, where I think the, the some of the traditional one or some of the Web3 natives, but trying to bring in the best of Web2, to bring the centralization are probably at a disadvantage because crypto intrinsically is linked to the decentralization, intrinsically linked to the openness and the transparency. And I, I think those who are looking at those values and those transparencies and the lower barriers are going to move towards tax. But absolutely, like the one payment instrument has not replaced the other payment instrument. But they, what they have done, they have worked together to expand the market for all participants. That's what I think will continue to happen in the, in the crypto market. Got it. Love that view. Kai, any comments? I was just going to say, so moving on to the, the, the next story, uh, Telegram is launching, announced they will launch a cryptocurrency exchange and non-custodial wallet. And so amid the ongoing fallout you know, from FTX, uh, Telegram founder uh, Pavel Durov announced the messaging platform intends to release a suite of decentralized crypto products, including a decentralized exchange and a non-custodial wallet. Uh, so maybe starting with, with you, Edward, like you know, Telegram announced a blockchain you know, in a white paper back in 2018. Uh, they then, you know, decided to to not move forward with that. You know, they ran into some issues with it. Now they're back, and as like a platform that many people in crypto use for messaging, do you think that they're going to be able to integrate a wallet natively into it and become more of a a crypto super app? Or how would you look at Telegram's opportunities in in the space right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting to kind of you know, see companies becoming the, the, the super app or indeed companies becoming payment companies themselves in some form, right? So you look at what Elon um, has said with Twitter. It's not too dissimilar. I mean, I think there's obviously interesting challenges around sending assets to people. Um, and are you going to adopt it given the fact that you can use a whole host of different pieces? Look, I, I fundamentally think that um, the way that adoption happens um, is through existing companies launching crypto products or enhancing the crypto suite. So for me, fundamentally, I think what Telegram is doing is good for the space. I, you know, I think what's super exciting. I mean, if you just think of, um, you know, a lot of the big wallet providers. If you look at Samsung or Apple or Google, um, you know, that they, they basically. If, if you have a wallet, right, you have the ability to have a wallet right now. It's called your phone, <laughs> right? And so if you, everyone, in theory, if, if these groups, and obviously Telegram is not as big as Apple, but I think it's a part of that story. If every single one of these groups can enable users to create a wallet seamlessly with an existing application and reduce that friction, I think that's an awesome, awesome thing. Um, you know, if you think about NFTs and you think about even just um, anything, you need that non-custodial wallet infrastructure. Um, so I think it's part of that part of that broader story. Um, will it be adopted? I don't know. I mean, I hope so. Um, but I also hope that the bigger groups, Apple Pay, Apple Wallet, I mean, you could imagine it. You could have your wallet right now, your ticket wallet, your card wallet, and then imagine that, your NFT or your kind of Web3 wallet. And that to me is what's really, really exciting. I think we'll start to see that. 
Yeah, Telegram seems unique because it's it has very much a crypto audience today. And you know, for people not in the space, like when I get a notification that a friend is joining Telegram, I'm usually like, oh, they're getting into crypto in some way because it's just built this ecosystem of there are many industry groups that are on there uh, and it's been an effective uh, way to, to communicate. Um, and so Mauricio, what, what's your take on this of, you know, I believe you could connect an existing wallet to Telegram. There've been bots that have done like token gating uh, Telegram chats where you can only join if you have an NFT, but it hasn't really been native to the experience. Uh, and why would you think, like, for someone outside, like, the decision to go with a self-custodial wallet versus a custodial wallet, like, why would Telegram, you know, go in, in that direction? Um, I I think the UX is where it's at. Like, if you're a, a retail consumer and you're getting into crypto, um, the problem for you is the UX, right? The UX is so much harder to cope with when you're dealing with seed phrases and private keys. And if you lose it, you lose everything. So I think the the, the UX in applications, um, like Edward mentioned, the wallets that are on the phone and most of the crypto people, as you, as you mentioned, are using either Telegram or Discord um, already. So they're familiar with the UX. Um, most of the crypto people are also familiar with a non-custodial wallet. When you join these two things and you create this convenience and convergence of the user experience and the ability to send or exchange assets as you're in the middle of a conversation, like it's the same impact that Vemo had when uh, sending a message as money, right? Hey, here's five bucks. There goes five bucks. Imagine doing that in crypto terms in the middle of a dialogue with, you know, your friends in a group uh, chat. Maybe, you know, we, we're going to see Dow treasuries being managed within the context of group chats in Telegram uh, with that capability built in. So all of the derivative use cases that come with better UX and integrated UX, um, I'm pretty sure are going to be mind-blowing and and I think, if anything, this should serve as an ex like a exciting inspiration for other software providers to actually start building uh, embedded crypto experiences like that. Because as Dalip was saying, well, yeah, Web2 has a, a great user experience. It doesn't have ownership, which Web3 does. You start to move from Web2 to 2.1 to 2.7, and then at some point to Web3, you're moving people with you. So I'm hoping that's the case for Telegram because most of the people I know in crypto, again, same thing, are all in Telegram. Yeah. And Dallop, how do you think about, it's interesting that you used to have, like if you go all the way back to, to the Libra days, you had large you know, social media messaging platforms saying, let's create both a wallet and a, a new network because blockchains are, are too slow and you know, you, you kind of have to create our own network to reach this mainstream scale. Then you could say, okay, Telegram was like, let's create our own network in ton and presumably a wallet on top of it. Now, do you think we've gotten to the point where the protocols and the layer ones, the layer twos have matured to the point where they're almost ready for mainstream consumers? And so these large platforms can just focus on wallets that plug into the underlying protocols instead of having to create both a wallet and a new protocol. Do you think we've gotten you know, to that point with networks like Polygon? I would say so. You know, but I think we are still scratching the surface when it comes to Web3. What is possible? And I will take a little the, an example back to the Telegram team. You know, when you think about the Telegram, right? Now, first time I used Telegram, the history came back to me because working at Facebook, we were thinking at WeChat as a whole system, right? It's a it's a P2P. It's a you know, the me sending $5 to Mauricio, Mauricio sending $3 to you out of that microtransactions that happens, which are not possible in some other platforms, right? Because they are too costly, they are not efficient. And secondly, you have the whole enterprise systems like the gaming, the movies, the ordering system, and all those things that can come into play. So I think when it comes to what is possible in Web3, we are still scratching the surface. I think all the Web2 situations that you see, the, all the business cases that you see in Web2, they have the potential to come to Web3. 
you know because we can provide better efficiency because we can have better we can leverage the ux from web 2 right and then we can enable the transparency that is not possible on web 2 so i think that we are still scratching the surface and more and more companies are coming in to start from the building so i have a point of view on that one kai my point of view is that whoever is going to win is going to base going to win on two two fundamental things one is the network effect that means how many partners are building on your platform how many networks that you can connect to you know and sometimes you have to look at like if you think about the ethereum the law of subtraction how do you build these networks that have the potential to become as big as your network if not bigger right so fundamentally as the industry continues to grow as this new use case continues to come we have to think from the perspective of what else can be done you know wallet is kind of people are looking at wallet in so many different ways wallet as just the your, your personal assets whether it's custodial or non custodial second is wallet is becoming your uh, identity layer right this this is how we can define who you are they become sometimes may become take a different shape of having the access management systems like right, through nfts and all but i i think in long term the whoever is going to win is going to win based on the uh, ecosystem of partners that they bring together the innovation that they can bring together but i i think we are at a place where we have enough number of wallets so rather than any new dapps coming into the marketplace any new developers thinking of starting a new dapp they can start with the wallets from anywhere from i'm not going to name any but you have hundreds of wallets that are secure reliable scalable uh, have the best ux out there or but in certain cases the um, organizations might think when i'm thinking of the bigger one whether they're in the uh finance industry or in the social media space they might to want to build some so that they can have the set of ownership because wallet at the end of the day becomes so important in terms of not only from the transaction but from also in the future cases of identity access management um controls although these are all decentralized system but the networks may want to have how do they take the bad apples out from the good ones although there may be a system where these guys are self managing self like that is the definition of decentralization that networks as it continue to evolve the the sub networks that come out of the network they are self controlling but at some point of time you want to have the baseline of standards that everybody can follow so i i do think so kai short answer is i do thinks that the l1s and l2s have enough number of wallets that can support the whole ecosystem but i do do i think that it's the end i don't think so i think the more and more organizations will come and they will build based on how they want to build the network for the future and and then edward how how do you think about the interplay between self custodial and custodial wallets where it used to be i have to sign i want to get into crypto i just want to have like hold an nft i sign up for a custodial exchange i go through kyc there I buy you know some ETH or USDC on that custodial exchange. Then I sign up for a self-custodial wallet and I withdraw you know those assets to my self-custodial wallet. Now you know what you're doing with Stripe. It seems like there's this new model where you can have you know effectively an on-ramp embedded inside of a self-custodial experience. And so you kind of get the best of both worlds. You could still use fiat. Uh, to get funds in but then it's immediately going to self custodial wallet do you see that in the vision around you know apple and google and amazon in this future are most of those big tech wallets do you think that they will be self custodial by default and then will it be this on ramp structure of regulated third parties that are actually you know helping to fund those wallets what do you think that market structure will look like yeah i mean i be obviously interesting to see what visa does too so interesting your thoughts on that i mean it's it i think this i mean it's part of this ux point that philip was just just talking about right i mean if you just think of a really simple use case um so for example ticketmaster has spoken about um an nft um effectively a tokenized ticket just imagine what that is imagine doing that right now as you said without kind of these on ramps that are natively embedded you have to go to an exchange buy it send it um wait for it to confirm on chain 
Uh, you have to handle all this complexity around input data, for example, if it's on a smart contract. Um, and then guess what? Now you don't have a self-custodial wallet, so now you have to set that up too. Imagine how easy this gets once you've got groups like Stripe and others. Um, you have your phone, you do your face ID, all of your credentials are already remembered, so you can pay seamlessly. Um, and then you've got groups like Telegram and others, which, and I think, you know, not forgetting Robinhood, for example, obviously that, that, that self-custodial wallet on Polygon, I believe, is still in beta. Um, but that's also a really interesting piece. So I, I do think that that story is really, really important. But if you just follow for a really, really simple use case, there is still too much friction. And I think the story of Stripe and other acquirers um, and other payment groups is part of that story. The other part is obviously the wallet piece that we've, we've spoken about. But those two have to come together in order for um, the broader story and consumer brands to actually, I think, um, work in a seamless way. Kai, if I can add one thing to it, uh, to AdWords Find, I think users are not going to care about, in so many ways, about the Web 2 and Web 3. And, you know, they will see that... Uh, you know, it's the UX that matters. Is it? Does it make my life simpler? Does it make my life more efficient? It, does it make it cheaper for me, right? And at the end of the day, I, I think a similar situation will happen that between the custodial and non-custodial wallets, like how do I move my money around? Like, why do I have to worry about, um, like, is it a custodial or non-custodial? So when we move from, I think we are still in the early adoption phase. When we move from early adoption to mass adoption, some of these terms may not even matter because it will be difficult for a normal person to understand the difference between a custodial wallet and non-custodial wallet and how my money moves. They want to see how I move it seamlessly. It's my money, right? If I'm the center of the management of how I manage my money, I shouldn't have to worry. And I think over the period of time, uh, the stuff that uh, Edward and Hastwana has done, I think, is going to take a center stage on how we are enabling those scenarios where people feel really empowered to do whatever they want to do, whatever experience they, they wanted to have, and how they want to do it, right? And it do it in a more cost-effective manner than they can do it today. Completely agree. So I think we're just going to take a quick pause here while you hear from our sponsors, and we'll be back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibility, and Visa is helping everyone take part. Visa enables commerce across their network and crypto networks through solutions like FinTech FastTrack, a quick and easy way for crypto innovators to issue payment credentials. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. How will Web3 unlock the future financial services and change the way we think about money? Our first ever Web3 report takes a deep dive into the biggest conversation taking place in finance. Unpacking tokens, stablecoins, ESG, DAOs, DeFi, regulation, and so much more. We also take a look at the opportunities it presents for your business. For crypto natives and newbies, head to 11fs.com forward slash Web3 report to download it today and get Web3 ready. Welcome back. For the second half of the show, we're going to start off with a couple of headlines that seemingly unrelated, but they are. So JP Morgan and DBS in Singapore with SBI Digital Asset uh, completed a DeFi tokenization trial on public blockchains. On the other side of the world, the New York Fed and leading banks in the US are starting a regulated liability network pilot. So on the Singapore case, the Monetary Authority of Singapore, MASS, uh, announced the completion of the pilot of Project Guardian, exploring the potential of DeFi for regulated financial institutions. So with uh, JP Morgan, uh, Onyx division, their blockchain division, uh, DBS and SBI, they executed this pilot for FX transactions and government bond trades using a modified version of Aave Arc uh, and Uniswap running, look at that, on the Polygon blockchain. Um, one of the tests was an FX trade and the other one was trading government bonds and the currency that they used was tokenized forms of deposits. 
On the other end, in the New York news, um, there's a 12-week pilot running with the New York Federal Reserve uh, with, uh, I think, it's eight banks in total, the, ma the major banks in the U.S. They're going to do tests with what they call the Regulated Liability Network that will serve as ground for participants to experiment with wholesale digital asset transactions in settlements. And this is only going to use simulated data, but it's going to uh, prove the concept of bringing in tokenized deposits. So I'm going to start with you, Dallop, uh, because this is obviously a Polygon related uh, in the sense of the mass pilot. Um, why is this so important? Why is at this stage of the industry having banks delving into DeFi is important for the overall development of the industry? You know, for two reasons. Number one, that big banks and big institutions are taking interest. And second is that interest is translating into the proof of concept. So what you have seen between the between the Monetary Authority of Singapore and JP Morgan is that the, this is beyond just the concept. This is the real proof of concepts that's out there. And from there, it's like the other competitors are also taking notes, right? And again, I, I always go back to the fundamental things that people do the things because they can do it more effectively and they can do it more transparently, right? And in this case, they prove that it is possible and we are glad that they did it on Polygon uh, blockchain. And you, you can trace everything back to the origin because of the um, op open ledger system of blockchain technology that it offers. So I, I think this is going to fundamentally change for the banks that has been hesitant so far. That at least now let's go out and experiment. And if you look at the uh, global banking and global financial systems, like you're looking at the transactions of trillions of dollars every single day, right? And if you see that, uh, you know, this is just the one use case where blockchain has been used uh, in two assets classes. But when you take the, that concept and extrapolate it to what is possible across the board, even if you look at the guy, I'm going to pick Visa on that one, like the number of transactions that they do, number of transactions that are cross-border, the number of transactions that are just the remittance from the, the third word to the first word or, or the other way around. It's a huge, huge, huge market opportunity for everyone in the financial system. From simple transactions on P2P, like that we just talked about on, which is possible on Telegram, to the biggest assets class that can transfer, right? And each one of them have different requirements when it comes to the security and regulations. But this proof of concepts make the headway for the others to come forward and the, even for the regulators to come forward and kind of participate on what the future of the uh, the cross-border transactions could look like. What is the asset class transference could look like uh, 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 from the regulatory standpoint? So that's why I think it's just opening up that, you know, the that faucet that's going to fill up the whole pool um, in, in the long term. Yeah. One one point that kind of uh, also was interested interesting is that they used uh, verifiable credentials, on-chain verifiable credentials. So, uh, each party would know who they're dealing with on chain uh, in ways that only they knew uh, and were authenticated against that. So that's that's another advancement. And obviously, for regulated markets, we're seeing by and large KYC uh, participants. So how do you see that play on uh, identity, on chain identity, evolving, Edward? And and what would it take for us to actually take this mainstream? I think on-chain identity is obviously critically important as you think of, about decentralized finance. I think we were talking earlier about Telegram, right? Um, how do you validate identity? A lot, a lot of Telegram users, uh, I don't know if they're willing to give, for example, their SSN. So at least not maybe to Telegram. Um, so how does that play out? How do you intertwine this? So I really think it's about this whole entire UX experience from identity validation to payments to then actually storage. And each three of these buckets in terms of the user flow have to be continued to be thought through. Uh, I, definitely not a digital identity uh, specialist on that point, but it's obviously a necessary piece uh, to, to the puzzle. Yeah. One of the, the takeaways that, that I've had from this is it it's felt like it used to be, you know, in this the old phase of like enterprise blockchain, private permission blockchains, not public blockchains. 
And because the one of the concerns was, well, it's scary. These are public. You, you don't have identity. You can't control what's going on. And so we have to rebuild blockchains from scratch. We have to create consortiums. We have to get everyone to agree on the rules of it to be able to harness a blockchain. Now, I think this is a great example of just how far banks have come and and really shout out to like the, the JPM team of how innovative they've been saying there's public infrastructure out there with networks like Polygon. You can use verifiable credentials to bring identity you know, onto it. You can use smart contracts to permission and allow which entities are transacting with each other. And so a lot of the controls that banks need and regulated institutions need may actually be able to be implemented in the smart contract layer on top of public networks rather than having to require building an entirely new network from scratch. And I think a big benefit of that is that then they can take advantage of a lot of the innovation happening of new protocols like Aave, like Uniswap, where instead of having to rebuild them from the ground up on top of a new permission blockchain, they can just you know, leverage or fork them in a way that can be used uh, under their existing controls, but on the public blockchain that they run on. And so I think that was one huge takeaway, and it's exciting to see you know, the leading banks across the world. And then the second is just this term tokenized deposits I think is going to be one of the biggest trends that you're going to hear more and more over the next year. And it's really the recognition that you know banks see the demand and growth for stable coins, but stable coins have kind of been this you know form of e-money that is created by non-banks. You know, the stable coins that are moving at scale over public blockchains are very much created by fintechs like Circle. Now you have banks saying, wait a minute. You know, we hold deposits, you know, we have liabilities on behalf of consumers, a liability of the bank. How do you represent that liability as a token on a blockchain? Give it all the power of a stable coin, but you still have the same legal structure of money that is the majority of the money in the economy, and you still have a regulated institution that's offering it. And so I think we're seeing a lot of interest in the, the second news item of the regulated liability network is that concept of it's not just this you know, dichotomy between stable coins by fintechs and central bank digital currencies by central banks, there are thousands of banks that create and offer you know, money to consumers. How do they bring their money on chain? I think that there's going to be a lot of innovation that happens there. And I think, to your point, that kind of puts a lot of resolution on the debate because it's going to be much simpler to use the infrastructure that's already there under the same regulatory understanding than having to create something that is new technology, new framework, all at once. It's just so many moving parts for CBDCs to work, while stable coins and maybe now tokenized deposits can play that part. So let's wrap it up. I'm going to hand it over to you, Kai, for honorable mentions. So in this part of the show, we want to quickly round up on some of the other stories that we didn't have time to cover, but still deserve a shout out. So Nike launches .swoosh Web3 platform with Polygon NFTs uh, that will go live in 2023. And so just continued innovation from Nike in this space is probably the best case study and brand that is executing. And uh, so they acquired a company called Artifact. They've been launching NFT crypto kicks. And now they're launching this new platform that is you know, going to enable consumers to co-create you know, digital apparel and sneakers, and then have a marketplace that you can then trade you know, these sneakers. And um, you know, I think these are exactly the type of initiatives that are going to onboard consumers who may not care anything about crypto, but they're excited about the Nike brand and excited about apparel that can actually have real world benefits and utility. You can have a digital version, can forge it into a physical version, uh, so I can't wait for this to go live. I'm definitely going to be playing around with it. And shout out to, to Polygon, you know, powering this. Uh, and it sounds like there'll be a Nike wallet that is embedded inside of it, uh, powered by BitGo as well. So really excited about that. So market maker Keyrock raised $72 million in this market. That's crazy, right? Keyrock is a digital asset market maker, and they raised the Series B funding from investors that include Ripple, six fintech ventures and middle game ventures the plan for the money is to invest further into infrastructure development scalability tools as well as uh, regulatory licensing across europe the us and singapore key rock was uh, co-founded by kevin the patol 
who's the CEO, and Jeremy De Groot, who's the CTO, and Juan David Mendieta, which is the CSO. And they started to create accessible and more efficient capital markets by deploying proprietary and highly scalable market-making technologies. Last year alone, K-Rock expanded to 200 unique new markets and has seen threefold growth in terms of trading volume. So this news is important because it shows that for sustainable uh, infrastructure for crypto, there is funding. Again, uh, we're talking about FTX all along, and what we're seeing here is a particular player in the market who's working in the infrastructure to create more efficient market-making uh, processes gets funded when needed, even though the market is uh, crashing down because of FTX. That means that we're seeing the technology take place instead of the speculation on crypto as an asset class, and that is always great for the growth of the industry. So Ledger rolls out a crypto life debit card across the UK and Europe. Uh, and so you know, I think this is a, a broader trend that we're seeing around more card programs uh, that are you know, tied to self-custodial wallets. And so how do you create you know, experiences? We announced a you know, partnership with blockchain.com uh, recently. Uh, we've seen many other self-custodial wallets embedding cards uh, within them and giving consumers the option to manage custody themselves, but when they want to spend, be able to spend it at any merchant that accepts Visa or MasterCard. So excited to see Ledger as another example of that. Awesome. So for this last segment of today's show, we're going to bring the panel back in, and I want to take a look at what the news and headlines have been grabbing your attention this month. Just a quick fire round. So I'm going to start with you, Edward. Uh, could you share something new that you're really excited about in the industry? I mean, other than obviously your new Swiss, right? <laughs> yeah, honestly, I need to think about the one. Um, it's been so it's been so overwhelmed by by the FTX piece. I mean, um, I don't know. You're going to have to come back to me on that one. Awesome. Dalip, anything for you? You know, there has been quite a few and quite a few that we discussed here too. But I will start with the caveat that I think whatever we discussed today, uh, you know, it's just scratching the surface and it's just like whatever we see, like one part of innovation in the DeFi space with uh, JP Morgan and uh, with the with the Singapore Monetary Authority. It's, these are just the leading example of what's out there, what's possible. And, and more and more participants need to come together to make that innovation happen. And by the time it gets to the mainstream, you know, there is no Web 2 and Web 3. There is no divide. There is just the best users experience, putting the user as the left, right and center of that, uh, uh, that ownership. Having said that, Nike is a great example that was just shared. Reddit, like another community-based, community-led program that is taking to the strides when it comes to NFT, like another great example. Um, we already discussed uh, uh, the Singapore and the JP Morgan uh, 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 example, but other than that, when I think of uh, the new bank in Latin America, how they are looking at leveraging the supernets from uh, a Polygon, again, the, in the same scheme, realm of things of how do you look at the edges, assets, how do you look at the uh, tokenization of those assets and making it easier for the end user to own it and transfer it and you know whole nine yards when it comes to the financial assets. Um, the Disney accelerators that was announced earlier this month, uh, again, a big, big, big play uh, of how do we bring the Web2 communities into Web3. Starbucks, I'm looking forward to what that opportunity can do for the industry when you have the NFTs in the hand of masses. How do they understand the difference between the something we discussed earlier, the wallets and who owns the wallets and which wallet do you use? How, do you, how does it help drive the awareness and education among the masses as we see the big entry from the everyday consumers into the space that has been led by mostly the early adopters and mostly by techies? Awesome. Kai, is there anything particularly exciting you about the industry? I think that the next generation of self-custodial wallets, you know, I've been playing around with a wallet, a lot of wallets, you know, lately and just seeing what some of the newer experiences are, are looking like. And it feels like particularly ones that are optimized for either layer twos or new high throughput blockchains, uh, where that's the default when the on-ramp 
goes directly onto USDC on Polygon or uh, a stable coin on, on a layer two like ZK Sync. And we're almost getting to the point where we might be like six to nine months away from you could actually build a wallet that looks and feels like a global Venmo that you could give to someone that they wouldn't have to know anything about crypto to be able to do it. And so some of the things around smart contract wallets and social recovery and you know, not having to look at seed words. So there are all these innovations coming together, gasless transactions and account abstraction that are just creating tools that the wallet experience, I think a year from now could be 10x what a lot of the wallet experiences were over the past few years that were very much crypto centric. And I think that's a huge opportunity uh, for many companies in the space. Love it. I'm really excited about Web3 Socials. We'll, we'll hopefully get an Insights episode in the future about this because Social Web3 is something, again, speaking to what you just said about UX in, in wallets, I think this is one of the, the things that will drive massive adoption because we're social beings. And I think having the ability to be social beings and still retain property and ownership of our data is going to play a massive difference in how we experience the internet. Do you think of anything, Edward? Can I <laughs> poke your brain on that? <laughs> Honestly, you guys have said everything. Um, I mean, it's it's nice to think of some good news um, despite a week, but uh, I feel like I've been a little bit too in it. <laughs> um, but I mean, there's a lot. I, I think the cross-border pieces, right? But that, there's nothing really that's come out publicly on those pieces. But I mean, um, I think for us, right, it's the, it's all about traditional players, traditional acquirers entering the space. And for us, look, ZeroHash doesn't want to be the brand. Uh, we would sometimes say we want to be the, um, the, the, the largest group that you, in crypto that you don't know about. Um, and so I, I think that's really part of it. I think cross-border remittance is going to be super, super interesting. Um, but, you know, a lot of people have delayed a lot of public announcements. So I think January is going to be a really, really exciting time. <laughs> I know for speaking from personal uh, knowledge as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So we're going to wrap up this news show. And just a quick reminder again, let you know the views of our panel are their own and not necessarily the opinions of the companies that they are representing. Thank you so much to all our guests. So where can people find more about you, Dallup? Twitter and LinkedIn. My Twitter handle is dtiagi and my LinkedIn handle is dalitiagi. Awesome. Edward? Yeah, you can follow ZeroHash on Twitter, which is just ZeroHashX. Um, and then obviously you can follow me on uh, on LinkedIn. And then also if you want to shoot me an email, it's just edward at zerohash.com. Awesome. Kai? On Twitter at Kai Sheffield and visa.com slash crypto. And as for me, you can find me on 11fs.com, on Twitter at 0xMauricio, and on LinkedIn, Mauricio Magaldi. So thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you really love it, please leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps other people find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Blockchain Insider or email us at podcasts at 11FS.com. This is all for today. Stay rare, stay weird. LFG.